0: What we've got here is failure to communicate.
1: Freedom. Freedom? What? sign away my freedom. Why, this is ridiculous. Don't be corny, brother. (laughs) Sure, our system of free enterprise isn't perfect. But before we throw it away for some imported double talk, Let's turn the clock back a few years to see what it's done for us.
2: With your host, Mike Paul. All right, guys. Joining us on the podcast today is Dr. Stephen Hicks. He's a professor at Rockford University, a senior scholar at the Atlas Society. He's the author of five books, uh, and he even has a documentary out. And uh, Dr. Hicks, I'm sure I'm leaving out a lot on your, your repertoire mm-hmm. there. But uh, anything else you want to tell us about yourself?
1: Uh, well, yeah, you mentioned five books. I just have a completed manuscript. I'll be working on tweaking it over the summer, called uh, Eight Philosophies of Education. Uh, Since uh, everyone's concerned with the state of education, my co-author and I are are looking at the philosophies that have been shaping uh, American education, but then more broadly, world education, Uh, so a lot of the abstract principles have true believers who go into uh, ed schools and start schools, and then we see the the manifestations there. So it's an applied philosophical book, and uh, I'm in the throes of working on it right now. It's great fun.
2: Yeah, well, I'm sure we are going to make our way back to education. That's something that we all have uh, opinions on. Um, But where I wanted to start today, uh, in preparation for this episode, I was listening back. I listened a year and a half ago or whenever it came out, but your debate with Thaddeus Russell on the Hmm. topic of postmodernism. And the whole time, because I was I was aware of you. I'd heard you on podcasts before, and I've been a a fan of Thad for years. When he used to be uh, very left wing politically, or not very Mm. left wing, but leaned left. Mm -hmm. And then over the last few years, he's kind of drifted in this more libertarian direction. So when the first time I listened to that, I'm like, oh, this like Thad Russell's debating. This is going to be fun to watch. He's debating this Stephen Hicks guy. Never really heard of him. I'd maybe heard of him on a, a couple different podcasts, never something in depth though. And then um, saw that you were a professor at Rockford university. And I'm like, Oh, that's cool. And, uh, and the whole time I'm listening to this and I know that you're an objectivist um, or, I mean, you, I'll allow you to describe your own beliefs or philosophy, but you know, you're of that persuasion. And I know that Thad is, you know, a postmodernist, but when it comes to real world policies, he's very libertarian. And the whole time I was thinking, if somebody who doesn't know either of these guys is listening, they're going to think, wow, these guys could not be more different. But if you guys actually just turned on the news and watched it together, you would have very similar takes on like 90% of the things going on in the world. So it's just very interesting how, you know, people can come from completely different lineages philosophically and arrive at similar points of view. And I guess that's not very common, but what do you make of that?
1: Uh, yeah, well, it is an interesting phenomenon about, uh, belief formation. Uh, so if we're talking about a broad ism like objectivism or libertarianism or whatever, typically, uh, you know, there are 30, 40 or 50 core elements that go into that package of beliefs and, uh, people who come to that package of beliefs can pretty much start anywhere. Uh, and and be uh, be gripped by and convinced by one aspect of that belief. And then that belief leads them logically to the next one right And and so forth. So people have different starting points and then uh, can can end up in in very similar similar places. Now, it's interesting, though, you know, if you take the the case of libertarians, uh, you would say, sure, if we watch the news and we are focusing on issues of, say, politics and economics, in many cases, we will have shared political and economic principles and so so agree on all of those things. But I think it would really depend on what the news was about. If the news was about religious matters or scientific matters, then uh, in the case of someone who is much more subjectivistic and relativistic or outright postmodernism, and Thaddeus Russell, uh, you're using his, him as an example, would we'll go further down that road. I think we would have substantial disagreements about how to interpret the news about religious matters, scientific matters, and, and, and so forth. And I think you could say the same thing, even if you started with something that's not overtly uh, uh, political. I mean, suppose you start with religious matters, and you say you have two people who are strongly Christian, say, and all you know about them coming in to the discussion is that they both agree with Christianity. And if you were to put, say, an abstract set of propositions, you know, these are 10 things that Christians believe in. You know, the, the two guys say might say yeah i believe those 10 things right agree but then they could have very different evaluations of just about everything else so for example among christianity there are people who come to their christianity by thinking you know the world really is a beautiful place and it's a it's amazing uh, how well everything is structured it's like it's designed for for human beings to be able to live a good and beautiful life and so there must be a, you know, a benevolent creator behind it all. And I sure hope that uh, uh, you know, the, the moral code that I follow means that I will get into heaven. So they've got a kind of benevolent understanding of what religion and Christianity is all about. But you can talk with other Christians and what they will say is when we look at the world, what we see is a lot of evil and sin and darkness and corruption and everybody at each other's throats. And God is very angry with all of us. And I am so scared that I am just going to burn in hell for the rest of my life. Uh, And that's what Christianity means to me. So it it is an interesting question at the outset how, uh, how much we would say to people who are nominally, say, Christian in terms of belief in an abstract set of principles actually agree on lots and lots of things. And I think then the same thing would hold when you take two people who are nominally, say, libertarian, they agree in limited government and market economics, but then when you put the flesh on all of the bones, how much they're going to agree on lots of other things.
0: I think that's
2: a really uh, good Libertarian. Point. Oh, sorry. I have a little bit of lag here.
1: Yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> No, I I think was a a bit of lag for me also about a minute back. So I hope I didn't miss anything important in Nick's initial framing of the question.
2: Okay. Uh, Yeah. Tyler, you can, you can jump in there. I
1: I like how I like,
0: I like the point you make there. I I definitely agree when you, when you, you know, if you paint broad brushstrokes, there's probably, you know, people can find a lot in common, but then, yeah, the deeper you dig, the more there's going to be some variance in, in beliefs. I mean, i i have, i sp- spent a fair amount of time on online and i i see it even amongst like we'll we'll use the libertarian community as an example of that there's it's like a running joke about the the amount of we call it infighting because yeah everyone's view on on this broad political or philosophical belief is so different yeah. yes mm-hmm. and 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 then even right. you know the the that's the broad umbrella, and then yeah, you have you have your objectivists, you have your they call it minarchists, you have anarchists, you have, and then you have left and right wing anarchism, you have people that refuse a label but they still hang in the libertarian circles. So,
1: yeah, yes, I, that's right. Yeah, you know, and even if you just you know drill down, I mean, this would be a bit of a cartoon version of these positions, but there are some libertarians who come to their libertarianism because they are very skeptical about the the power of human reason. They will say people are very often ignorant about their own lives and they can't think big picture. Uh, So on the basis of that, we shouldn't allow any one individual or small numbers of individuals to think that they know enough in order to organize a whole society. And it's hard enough to know ourselves, so I can't really know you and what's valuable to you. So that doesn't put me in a position to say I have any authority over you and tell you what you should be able to do. But then that's to say you're coming to your libertarianism from a very uh, epistemologically or cognitively skeptical minimalist kind of position. And other uh, people will come to their libertarianism very impressed with the power of human cognition. Look what the scientists have figured out, and the engineers have figured out. And people are smart, and they can big uh, dream big dreams and plan their lives out. And we need to give people then freedom so that they can use their big brains and and work things out. And so they're coming from a very epistemologically optimistic position. Uh, now. On one sense they're both agreeing that government should be small and limited but it's not clear really that they're in the same philosophical universe on lots of other things
0: mm-hmm.
2: now when it comes to the the um schools of thought libertarianism objectivism minarchism uh you know we talk about how many different camps there are but in reality we are we make up very small numbers in the general population And the big question between all these camps is how do we sell this to the public? How does libertarianism or objectivism kind of catch fire in this kind of populist wave that we're seeing really across the world right now? And I think right Mm -hmm. now is as ripe of an opportunity as ever, as we'll ever have. I mean, with all of the, uh, let's say like central bank activity over the last year and the last 10 years, I mean, we're going to see some, Mm -hmm. I think, economic fallout from that. And it would be very helpful if when it hits the fan, people understand why it happened. And what do you think? I I know it's a, it's a tough sell. I think we can all agree that it's a tough sell because socialism and Marxism, it's this very, like the world owes you something. There are these rich people and resources are infinite. It's just Mm. being hoarded and kept away from you. And, to me, like the idea of libertarianism is very freeing. It's like, no, you are in control of yourself as an individual, you're in control of your destiny. But how do we outcompete these ideas that promise people something for nothing? Yeah. All
1: right. Well, that that's actually a great set of questions. I was keeping track as you were going through. And I think there's like four <laughs> subtopics packaged into into yeah. all of that. So deconstruct uh, as you I- will. Well, yeah, that's right. So I think what we'll do is we'll just take like one part of it and then we'll see where that takes us and we'll, we'll end, up, end up cycling back. But what you're saying toward the end is actually very interesting, uh, kind of psychologically and uh, morally. And I think all of these are your individual psychology and your individual moral commitments before you even start to think about big picture political things. So, you know, for example, most of us are not cognitively mature. To think about big picture political issues until we're into our mid to late teens, so, you know, which is partly why you know we think it's reasonable that people can't vote, say, until they're they're eighteen. They don't have enough information. They don't have the abstract skills, the ability to follow chains of arguments, right and right and so forth. But long before you are eighteen, you develop a moral character. You develop a sense of your personal identity, uh, and and I think that is where. The, the rubber meets the road. Now you mentioned the libertarianism as freeing uh response for you Nick as an individual but at the same time we do also know that for many people when they are confronted with the idea of lots of freedom it's intimidating to them and they they don't want to have all of that that freedom. It sounds like too much responsibility and you know in many cases big government it's uh, uh it's not a supply side issue I and mean, obviously there's lots of politicians who want to have more power to tell you what to do but it's also a demand side problem there are lots of people who are quite comfortable with and actually want leaders to tell them what to do because it takes the responsibility off of off of their shoulders so again if we if we try an analogy here uh, if you think about religious matters for a lot of people uh, you know the idea that there is no God can be a liberating, Feeling right, they start to think about the issues, but what religion has meant to them has been you know, this big, powerful, maybe scary guy up in the sky watching them all of the time, telling them that they can't do all of the things that they want to do, and that's institutionalized in some sort of a church, or maybe their parents are religiously strict. So, for them, the idea that there is no God. Uh, if they can convince themselves that uh, that that's the truth, that is going to be profoundly liberating. Finally, I can have my own opinions. I can uh, think my own dreams. Uh, I can have my privacy without uh, uh, everybody looking at me all the time. But we do also at the same time know there are lots of people who, when confronted with the idea of the, the death of God or there is no God, it is profoundly dispiriting to them. They feel crushed they feel alone in the universe they feel like you know god the father is no longer looking out for them and they they don't feel like they're ready to take on the world all by themselves they kind of still want a god the father to tell them what to do and to be to be looking out for you so i think uh, uh then to come to your first question which is what liberty-oriented people can do, libertarians, objectivists, and all of the other ones, is uh, 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 pay attention to politics, pay attention to economics, but I think the most important thing is people's individual moral psychology, as as I've been describing it. If we're going to have lots of people who are amenable to the idea of being robustly responsible for their own lives, uh, in all of the areas that we libertarians uh, want to uh, want to prize freedom, that is going to require a fairly robust sense among the individual that, uh, that I I can take charge of my life and I want to take charge of my life, and uh, that is a moral issue much more than it's a political issue. And cultivating that in young people, I think, is the the most important uh, underlying factor. Now, in the middle. You you were mentioning hard sell and 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 soft sell, and here again I'm I'm not so sure that uh, that free markets and 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 liberalism is a hard sell or or a soft sell, or that socialism is necessarily a hard sell or an easy sell, and so on. And again, I think the the same divide runs through people. In many cases, you know, people you tell them that socialism, uh, you know. You know, everybody's going to work and everybody's going to put everything into a common pot and everybody's going to share everything equally. You know, for many people, that is offensive to their sense of justice. You mean, I'm going to work really hard because that's the kind of person I am. There's going to be all these lazy schmucks and they're going to freeload off of me. That doesn't sound like justice as well. Uh, Or it's going to offend their sense of pride and independence. You mean? Uh, you know, I, you're telling me that I, I can't uh, start my own business and make it on my own and go my own way. I have to be part of this group and share everything equally. That's that's offensive to me, right? I I, I don't want to be you know living in a commune. I mean, I want friends and family, right, and so forth. But I want to be an individual, right, and and, and free to go my own way and stand on my own two feet and so on. Uh, so uh, that at the same time, of course, there are other people who say, oh, wow, that's that's so nice to think of everybody sharing and and to some extent, I don't have to worry so much about putting food on the table because I know the group has got my back and and, and so forth. So again, I think whether it's a hard or a soft sell at the political level is going to depend on, on uh, people's moral psychology. Now, um, I think also there's uh, not only a moral psychology issue, but a cognitive psychology issue. And this might be where we're getting into the the point you're making about it being a hard sell in in one way i think it's true that libertarianism is a harder sell cognitively because it pitches the case for freedom in terms of some very abstract principles so if we think about constitutional rights for example you know a right you know and to claim that absolutely and universally everybody should have the freedom of conscience in religious matters Right. So for someone to think of that very broad abstraction and, and then to think of there, you, you mean, Muslims, too, and Jews and Christians of all sorts and atheists. And that's a lot of work to think through all of that. Right. And uh, uh, and so forth. Um, so, or, or the idea or, you know, that, uh, uh, you know, any of the Bill of Rights, which are all very universalistic and very abstract, uh, it's hard for some people to think in terms of abstract principles. They, they are much more comfortable operating at a at a lower level of uh, kind of cognitive cognitive efficiency. So uh, for libertarianism to work as a matter of principle, then we need to have lots of people who are comfortable with thinking in terms of abstractions. and and, and very universalistic principles. Or if we don't think so much even about constitutional principles, if we think about free market economics, and as we know, a lot of libertarians, they're not so interested in religious freedom issues or or artistic freedom issues. They come to it because they're interested in entrepreneurship and what makes some countries rich and some countries poor. So they're very interested in business and economics and, and so forth. And so then you start explaining, why is it that say market friendly economy are so much more productive than socialist economies or command economies or tribal economies and so on. And you have to start talking about supply and demand. And you have to start talking about marginal utility and diminishing returns and starting to think about money as an abstract medium of exchange, right? And, and collateral issues and so on. And it's very soon, it gets very abstract and all of that economic theory. And what you know is, right? People who started to struggle with 10th grade math They are just not going to get there, right? It's just going to start to seem much too absent somehow magically the market's going to just sort of make everything work better. And in their psychology, this is not a moral psychology issue. It's not necessarily that they're afraid of hard work and being responsible for themselves, but their understanding of how the whole society or the whole system is going to work for them since they are more concretely oriented in their thinking. The idea that someone is in charge, right? I can point to the governor, or I can point to the president and that guy's in charge. Uh, it's not just the abstract impersonal market. Uh, and or I can think in terms of a family model and a kind of a commune where it's, you know, me and 20 other people in a tribe and we all know each other and we're in each other's business and helping out. That's much more concrete. It's not you know, international bankers in London and dealing with brokers in Rio de Janeiro, people I've never met and I have no idea really what they are doing. So that cognitive level uh, of understanding of why a free society works is absolutely important. And to the extent that we have lots and lots of people, now we're coming back to education, uh, who are coming out of school as young adults, but with rather modest cognitive skills, the free market case, and the, uh, the limited government case is going to be a harder sell to them. So I was, I was going to
0: touch on that. I, I'm glad you, you circled back to education. I, so I think, I think you're, you're spot on, especially about the part where Thank you. You, you, you start explaining economics to some people and you, you kind of you watch them just their eyes just glaze over. It's just not something that a lot of people are interested in. I think that political discourse um, today, especially in the social media clickbait age is, is very emotionally driven. And I think that's why you see people in in the millennial generation and the generation coming up behind it, kind of gravitating towards more collectivist ideals because it's an easy sell emotionally. Like look Mm. what the rich people are taking from you. You know, they don't want, to provide you with healthcare. They don't want to provide you with more education. They don't want to pay teachers, you know, like they, they don't want to do these certain things that it's very easy to make it an emotional issue. And that's easier to sell than like, Hey, have you read uh Mises or Hayek? Like they're, you know, it's hard to be like, you should go read the road to Serfdom. It'll, (laughs) it'll really show you the horrors of collectivism. Like, they'll get two pages in and be like, nah, I, I'd, I'd rather watch Bernie Sanders say, we need to tax the rich people, 75% of their income.
1: Yeah. So No, I think, I think that's astute. Um, So to go to maybe another level of kind of fine grainedness in the analysis, I think everything that you're saying, Tyler is true about economic issues because of the abstractness of them. Anything that I think is uh, heavily scientific and technological uh, uh, is also then going to be an easier sell. The scientific experts will just tell us what to do. So our experience with COVID responses over the last year, I think is, uh, is very interesting, but um, I think it's a little more fine grained overall than that because it depends on what sector of culture and what sector of a person's life you're talking about. So if you say, for example, you know, the economy, who's running the economy and is going to make sure that, you know, the rich guys aren't stealing too much and exploitation. And how did, you know, this guy just sitting in an office in New York city somehow, you know, make $3 million today where here I am working really hard. And I only took a home one hundred dollars today or whatever. It doesn't seem like, like it's quite right or whatever. so that's really hard and abstract. But if you switch to other areas of life, the case for freedom I think is much easier, more easily sold. so if you were you know to start talking with people about their sex lives to make it take something that's very personal, you know if we start to say you know there's there's some guy out in the world who's having more sex this month than you are. isn't that unfair, and shouldn't Bernie Sanders do something about? You know, redistributing <laughs> the uh, you know, the, the guys are no, 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 don't insult me, right? I can, I can handle my own sex life, right, and so forth, mm-hmm. and 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 if we start saying, you know, you, you know, you've got two children, and you're thinking about three, maybe uh, uh, you know, the government should step in and 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 check to make sure that you really are qualified and capable of raising a third child, a child, uh, and, and maybe making you get a vasectomy, right, et cetera. People are going to be insulted by that. They're going to say, hell no my sex life is mine i am competent <laughs> to run my own yeah. sex life i want the freedom to run my own sex life and the government should stay out stay out of my bedroom now the difference there though is that the one's that sex life is much more concrete and personal and experientially understandable by everyone whereas by contrast things like the economy is much more abstract and more difficult. Scientific matters are much more complex and and, and difficult. And I think the same thing could be said about, you know, aside from our our sex lives, uh, if you think of people's religious lives, lots of people, they understand uh, that uh, some sort of philosophy of life is important to them, And they're not necessarily going to study lots of different philosophies and know about stoicism and humanism and existentialism and so on. They're raised in a certain religious tradition that they can understand that the principles are important. They don't necessarily have really good arguments for them, but it's important to them personally in their lives. And then even people of modest cognitive achievement, modest education, if you start telling them, we think the government should, tell you what church to go to and when you can go and what you need to wear and what you can believe and what what you can't believe and so on, people will be resistant to that. And that I think is because religious beliefs and religious lifestyle is something that is more easily grasped by everyone at a personal level. So mm-hmm. I think uh, selling liberalism uh, or libertarianism or, or objectivist principles in the matters of sex family, religion, and so forth is a pretty easy sell, whereas it's in some of the other areas that we have a harder sell.
3: Sure. So Dr. Hicks, you you drew a very interesting parallel that we've discussed on the show several times between people who look to God for uh, comfort and security and people who turn to the state to be their nanny. And it seems like, is there an inherent trait in most every individual that does seek following some kind of higher power where they need something to kind of give them comfort and something to tell them right from wrong.
1: Right. Well, no, I don't think there is anything inherent in it. Uh, And here I think we have to turn to some developmental issues in psychology. My my view is that natural, normal human development is you start off as a relatively dependent individual as as a child and that the, the healthy growth is toward more and more independence. And that uh, human nature is in part uh, built such that we, 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 we naturally give ourselves a push. You know, We start to speak for ourselves. We start to stand up by ourselves and want to walk by ourselves. And you can see two-year-old kids and three-year-old kids, uh, when they learn some new skill or they figure something out, you know, how much pleasure it gives them and how much they want to uh, share with their parents, especially, I can do this and so forth. And so if that continues on to normal adulthood, then by the time the person is an adult, they have the cognitive skills and the motor skills and the personal character skills and the emotional management skills uh, and so on to be able to uh, take pride in saying, I'm going to move out of my parents' home and become a fully functioning individual out in the real world. I'm not going to just believe things because my mom and dad told me I'm going to believe them. I'm not going to take money from my mom and dad anymore. I like to stand on my own two feet, make my own rules, set my own curfews, have my own car and so forth. So I think that's natural and normal human development. So what has to be explained is what happens to some people along the way such that that gets stunted and in some cases, it doesn't. It's not just that it gets stunted, but it actively gets trained out of people by inappropriate parenting and and inappropriate uh, teaching right, along the way. So uh, if we've got someone who is you know you know, you know actually you know we have jokes about this right you know the the 35 year old guy who's still living in his mom's basement right? that's <laughs> that, that's culturally uh, something to be ashamed of. There's something wrong with that guy. We don't just say well it's just another. You know, alternative lifestyle path of development. That's not the way humans should uh, should grow up to be. To grow up to be mm-hmm. adults. So, if uh, by the time I, I do think you've got someone who is old enough to have their cognitive capacities developed, that they can think for themselves and decide who they're going to be what's the difference between right and wrong and how to be make judgment in complex life situations. And they um, don't know how to do that well yet, or they're afraid of doing that. So they want a supernatural being to do that for them, or they want an institutional being like a government to do that for them. I think that's uh, abnormal development or that's stunted human development. So to
2: pivot a little bit, um, you are a professor, so you're in academia, and you have, we'll we'll say, unorthodox political beliefs and philosophical Mm -hmm. beliefs uh, for academia standards. Uh, uh, To my understanding, there was a time when you had more diversity of opinion and philosophy, but now it's become this sort of monolithic, uh, left-leaning, progressive um I I, has, I always hesitate to use the word Marxist because you know not too many people are true Marxist believers sure. it's just that's they're influenced that way but what kind of reception do you get as a professor because I mean obviously yeah. you're not very like in your face like you you have a way of you know describing things where you're not confrontational you're just kind of like discussing ideas do you get any resistance for your ideas
1: Yeah well, that's, a, that's an interesting question. First, uh, first half of your question is kind of a demographic assessment of what's going on in higher academics. And uh, you know, crudely, I think uh, it's fair to say that the Academy is in worse shape now than it was a generation ago, than it was two generations ago as well. In terms of commitments to truth seeking, uh, to, to, to cultivating, the, in students, the capacity for independent judgment on cognitive matters—it's much more biased. It's much more indoctrinating in its thinking at a, at a very high level. But you do have to start drilling down, and uh, when you're doing your demographics and, and breaking higher education into subsectors, so there I would say the the sciences, the hard sciences, are still very relatively healthy. They they have a very modernist, enlightenment, pro reason. Institution and, and culture, truth is prized. You know, fudging the data and just making up your own narratives and stories is is, uh, is frowned upon. In fact, you can't become a scientist if if that's what you want to do. The social sciences, I think, are more mixed, but are overall pretty healthy. And in the social sciences, I would include economics, history, and and so on. In the humanities, uh, where philosophy is typically housed, I do think that's where the worst of the worst is. So in many cases, excuse me, some anthropology departments, uh, um, literature departments, most of the uh, the special studies departments, whether it's ethnic studies and racial studies and gender studies and so forth, most of those are strongly dominated by people in the humanities and it's in, in that uh, subsector of the academic world—that the worst of the worst is—and and frankly, at some schools, uh, in some departments, it's uh, it's god awful. It it really is. It really is pretty horrible. Now, my my home discipline is <coughs> philosophy, and you mentioned that one along the way. I think philosophy, among the humanities disciplines, is one of the healthier disciplines. I think it's true that it was in philosophy that the worst of the skeptical and subjectivistic and cynical arguments were developed out of which postmodernism and various other pathological movements arose. But uh, philosophy does institutionally have some built in sub correctives. You know, we are still about the arguments, the best arguments for and against. And what's uh, this is an overstatement. But what's mostly happened in philosophy was philosophy was at a very skeptical place when I was an undergraduate student um, uh, and then in the generation before. But uh, so 1950s, 60s, 70s, and on into the 80s. But at a certain point, the philosophers said, "Okay, we looked at all of these really, you know, strong arguments that led us in a skeptical direction, uh, and we looked at counter arguments, But now it's just getting boring, and let's let's try to find some other arguments." And so they've moved off in some other other directions that are much more much more healthy. So all of that said, now then to come to me personally, um, uh, you know, obviously there are some people you know at, at my institution who uh, who hate me just because of my just because of my views that's true um but uh, it hasn't been a it hasn't been a big problem uh, mostly you know one is able to just isolate those various uh, people and just not not interact with them but they're not entirely avoidable as well and then uh, some people uh, to put it more mildly they are you know they. They will say they disagree with me. You know they think my ideas are wrong and destructive, but you know, they can recognize that I'm you know, a pretty smart guy. I publish a lot and I publish uh, you know stuff that's that's uh, recognized and good, and I'm a good teacher and so on. So grudgingly they will they will ac- accept me. But yeah, I am kind of the the token liberty guy. There are a few others around who are kind of underground about it. It, it doesn't help them in their department to uh, to be too pro reason or pro liberty. So they, they fly under the radar, but there is some, some quiet support. And also my institution does come out of a long uh, liberal arts college institution where you know, part of the, the liberal arts ethos is that you are supposed to be training people to be able to think for themselves so that they can go out into the complex world and have good arguments about uh, about science and politics and all the complicated things in life. Uh, and, and there's still enough of an overall ethos of uh, of, of having people read uh, not just one side of the arguments, but rather reading both sides and so on. Now that has shifted at my institution significantly in the last 10 years or so, but I feel like that's the way it is. Now in the academy, more broadly, it uh, my reception, it really depends. Um, you know I've, I've written uh, quite a bit on postmodernism and, Probably my, my best known book is on postmodernism, and it's been you know widely reviewed in lots of academic journals, and lots of uh, scholars have picked up on it and commented on it, and some uh, range of disagreement about this that or the other thing. You know, did I interpret Kant correctly or Nietzsche correctly, and so on. But one interesting thing has been that uh, uh, there's been total silence from the postmodern community. So the the postmodernist journals. Uh, won't publish anything that I send in. It routinely just gets rejected and uh, and I'm never invited to uh, to uh, to participate in any of the symposia if it's going to be published in a There seems to be a bit of a lag there. So quite yeah. clearly, uh, you know, I don't want to you know, get too big ahead about this, but they know I'm out there for the, the, the total deafeningness, I think it is in keeping with their entire philosophical approach. They're not interested in debate and argument and, uh, and self-criticism and, and, and so forth. But uh, uh, there's been enough you know, other interests uh, among other people around the world who are smart people, genuinely interested in what's going on in the intellectual world. So there's still lots and lots of colleagues with whom I have productive engagements.
2: Very now, cool. Thad Russell did say that you were Jordan Peterson's mentor
1: on postmodernism. Is that true? Mm. Yeah you know, I don't know if that's true. Um, you know Jordan Peterson is a very smart guy and he's a very widely read guy. Um, uh, so you know I think one of the impressive things about him is uh, not only his his moral courage for standing up to some of the clear excesses of political correctness and wokeism and and so on. So he has a, a strong backbone that is relatively rare inside the academic world, but he is world-class in his uh, areas of, uh, of, of psychology, uh, so he knows that literature very well and has made his contributions to that literature. And he has uh, clinical practice, so he's not just a theory guy, he's interested in you know, where the rubber meets the road in, in, in applying psychology to people's personal lives. But uh, even more uh, uh, impressive to me, it's not to say that I agree, right, but uh, that he is a, he's a synthesizer. So one of the uh, weaknesses of academic life for the last century or so has been how many people will go into their specialties and uh, silo themselves and really only stay inside their area of specialty and not connect what's going on in their area to other areas and so on. So Jordan Peterson, to his credit, is one of the few people who's trying to, you know, put together a big picture synthesis. He wants to have the psychology integrated with the philosophy, with the religion, uh, with the history, with uh, the certain amount of politics and economics and so on, and that's something that we always need in, uh, in every generation is, you know, we have to take everything and divide it into all of its pieces in order to study it in its specialty form, but then we also have to try to integrate it all into, into the big packages and, and apply it to, to our lives. So I think uh, uh, my understanding of what happened is, you know, I published uh, the postmodernism book quite a while ago. And it was well reviewed, and it was selling fine for the first ten years or so. But then, uh, and I had moved on to other things uh, of interest. But then uh, the culture kind of caught up with postmodernism, and it started to spill out of the academic world into the broader <coughs> culture. And then I think uh, people in universities who are doing first-rate work inside their professional fields, you know, Jordan Peterson being one of them, saying, you know, this is now a problem inside my my field of, uh, of psychology and I need to learn something about this. And so, uh, or, or there's some just very bizarre things that are happening out in the broader culture and we need to get up to speed on this. And so I think he just started reading, read my book, liked it, and then uh, um, recommended it uh, publicly uh, a few times and so on. So how much he, uh, you know, he, he learned from my book, how much was stuff that he had already uh, thought of on his own, uh, uh, how much that he has integrated you know, themes from me and similar themes from other people, I don't I don't know. You know, he and I have had two extended discussions on his uh, on his podcast series, but we didn't talk about that issue in in particular. What I do know is that uh, there's a lot of overlap between his critique of postmodernism and my critique of postmodernism. I'll just leave it at that.
2: Yeah, because, uh, I mean, I'm a huge fan of Jordan Peterson. I mean, I discovered him four years ago, and his uh, his lectures, I mean, were pretty life-changing for me. I was only 22 at the time, so it was, uh, you know, it came at a good time. And I was going to say, if you were the reason that I've done the, uh, the impression, you know, the bloody postmodernist, the neo-Marxist, so many times, <laughs> that would just be a novelty. That'd be funny.
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, that's one area of partial overlap and one area of partial disagreement. And this is uh, perhaps getting too much into the weeds for this discussion, but I think the the formative decade for postmodernism is in the 1950s, which what was going on then. Uh, Jordan tends to put it in the the middle 60s and on into the the 70s. So that's a bit of a a nuancy issue. As you pointed out, his favorite phrase is postmodern neo-Marxism. And uh, um, I think there is a lot of neo-Marxism, but it's a generation back in the intellectual history development of this, this movement. I think what we're dealing with now and what we've been dealing with for the last 40 years is, is uh, much more influenced by Jean-Jacques Rousseau uh, and less by, by, uh, by Karl Marx. So, and, and those are two very different epistemologies, understandings of human nature, uh, and, and two very different understandings of what socialism should be and how it's going to come about. So uh, I, it's a mouthful, but I, I would say postmodern neo-Rousseauianism, which is, it doesn't have the yeah. same, same ring, right? But uh, uh, again, that's getting, getting into some weeds, And then there are some, some other issues. But nonetheless, uh, he has done Yeoman's work in, in uh, drawing intellectuals and the general thinking public into awareness of uh, what's going on there and kind of shorthand tags. You have to use some shorthand tags and they're they're never going to be perfect. So I'm, I'm fine in some context with talking about postmodern neo-Marxism.
3: For sure. So I would like to touch a little more on academia, particularly uh, elementary age, um, especially you not only being in the same state, but you live like two school districts away from us. So hmm. uh, I got little kids one in school three not in school yet so this is something that's very close to me that i am very worried about because i can't even go to the library without you know propaganda books being out in front of my kids all with left-wing ideology it's on their television Hmm. it's in their schools and you know i could even try to homeschool or private school but it's in the world that's going to be around them that they grow up in um so, so what's your take on what's going on inside the public schools right now and what would you say the best way, as a parent, would be to combat it?
1: Yeah. Well, yes, that's a that's a good question. Um, I think what's going on in the public schools is a is a mess, and part of my current book project is eight philosophies of education. I should mention I have a co-author, a younger PhD from Canada, Andrew Colgan. His uh, PhD is in philosophy of education from a, from a few years ago. And uh, so one way to to approach our book project is if you look at public schools and you try to say, okay, what's going on here? And then you say it's a mess because the curriculum is not coherent. The methodologies that are used don't necessarily match the content of the curriculum. The assessment methods don't fit in the architectures of the schools don't fit in and so on. So there is no such thing as the, system of education right now instead what we have is a hodgepodge of a variety of different systems so what has happened in the history of say north american education is there have been philosophical and ideological uh uh, uh, trends so in the 1920s for example john dewey and a certain kind of pragmatism that shaded into progressivism became very important And then lots and lots of uh, teachers went to teacher college, learned that system, and then they went out and tried to reform American education in the direction of kind of pragmatism and or progressivism. But already American system was much more realist and or idealist. I'm using those as philosophical. Labels for for systems and the reforms were partial and so what you then ended up with was a school system That's got some idealistic elements some realistic elements some pragmatic elements and so forth after World War II, Existentialism becomes very sexy in uh, in the academic world in the intellectual world and you've then got lots of teachers who, uh, who become existentialist and professors of education who say we need to go in a more existentialistic direction. And so you have a, then a cohort of teachers who go out and they partly move things and shift things in a more existentialist direction. So then what you've got is existentialism and pragmatism and some behavior, uh, I was gonna to get to behaviorism in just a minute. Right? And then coming out of psychology, B.F. Skinner and behaviorism is everywhere dominating. And that's the the opposite of existentialism in a lot of different ways, but a huge number of teachers come through. And so by the time you get to the 80s and the 90s, it really is a is a hodgepodge. And the Montessorians are involved. And then there's lots of Marxists who are involved. And then the postmodernists come along. So part of what we're trying to do is just disentangle all of the elements so that people who read this book will then be able to say all right now i know a little bit about existentialism and marxism and postmodernism and realism and montessori and so on so when i look at what's going on inside a particular school i can say oh that's a behaviorist method right or that comes from existentialism and it's just cognitively clarifying right in that particular respect Now, at the same time, I think it is true that the latest uptick is a kind of applied postmodernism. Now, postmodernism was high academic theory in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. That's the generation of Michel Foucault, Jacques Derrida, Richard Rorty, right, and all of the names that the nerds are familiar with. But what I started to see uh, when I started looking at postmodernism seriously in the 1990s, this was after I'd finished my PhD work. Uh, and That actually was my first encounter reading a lot of these continental postmodern thinkers. My, my philosophical training had been very analytical and positivistic and, and pro-reason. Pro, uh, pro Um, um, But then I started to to, to realize that the theory that had been developed by philosophers in the 60s, 50s and and 70s was then uh, starting to be very influential in schools of education. So they had trained a significant number of graduate students who then went on to become professors of education. And then they started to change the nature of the uh, the teacher training curriculum. What should a proper curriculum look like? What should methodology be? What kind of teachers should we be, be hiring? What should assessment measures uh, be, lo- be like, right? And so on. So all of the things that professional educators think their way through. So you started to see you know, a significant minority of professors of education training the teachers being postmodern. And then they became a majority by the time the millennium uh, changes And then now what we are then seeing is a generation of teachers who are now in their 30s and in their 40s. They were trained 20 years ago, but now they are in positions of power. They've got tenure. Some of them have become principals or assistant principals or they're in charge of curriculum development. And so there's a leveraging of of that particular, particular movement. So what's going on right now is a hodgepodge uh, there's good stuff, there's bad stuff, uh, but uh, the, the current trend, I think, is in a, in a much more ideologically unhealthy direction. All of the political correctness, wokeism, uh, uh, you know, the use of guilt and collectivism and shame right, and false pride for, for members of minority groups and a, a kind of a lack of cognitive training and so forth all of that is on the rise and it is uh, it is very problematic. I think when you get to the point where uh, many teachers' colleges uh, kind of have loyalty oaths that before we will give you your degree, you have to in effect sign an oath saying that you sign on to these 10 principles or whatever and it's all wokest or SJW stuff, that's the sign of uh, of, of some bad problems. Wow. So either you're going to have true believers right going out or you're going to have a bunch of Teachers who uh, who feel ashamed because they signed the oath hypocritically without really believing it, and people who feel in their heart of hearts that they are being hypocritical and shameful are not going to be going to be effective teachers.
0: So, to to follow up to that, I uh, I'm almost finished with uh, your your book Nietzsche and the and the Nazis. Uh. Uh, and I, I, I slacked I slacked I was I was moving I didn't get to finish it but I'm
1: close. Um <laughs> you don't cool. need to make any excuses whatsoever. So, I'm just happy no, reading I Thank I you. found
0: <laughs> the the part about education and and kinda and I, what I drew some parallels to what I observe and like looking back on my own education. Now granted I've been out of the the k through 12 years for a decade and some change now at this point but um i'm looking at this like you know there's a common theme in like uh, the liberty circles like they want your kids the government wants your kids for education they want to you know they want government preschool and you know like mike said there's and like it, like you said as well they're kind of moving their their social commentary into education. And I look back and you know, from what I've read on history, I, I don't know how much we really learned about history versus revisionist mm. history. You know, yeah. I mean it's written it's written by the victors. So sometimes, sometimes sometimes, yes. And and you look at like what's going on now compared to even when I I mean what I the education that we received was conservative by today's standards in some aspects Mm. and i i just like i found it interesting how like the the nazis basically had all their teachers they had to be members of the party they had to they had to be indoctrinated and
1: and you had a state mandated curriculum right and 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 then you you had all the youth groups that the boys and the girls right mm -hmm. joined and it wasn't just during the school day it was on weekends and summer camps and so on and in some yeah. cases you take the children away from their parents right so yes for sure
0: and 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 i mean i can't help but see some parallels maybe on a yes. much more mild you know right but it seems to continue to head more and more towards the the collectivist style of of cultural training if you will yeah. because i i believe that the the soviets did the same thing they had right. all their their communist party clubs their trade unions you couldn't you couldn't get a job without being a, a member of the party in certain fields
1: or right. or a member of a union so yeah, so I think that story that you're telling, there's a significant grain of truth to it. And so yeah, there are lots of historical examples of authoritarian true believers who become politically powerful. And they want to say, we need to totally control the kids from day one in order to shape them into our vision of what, what children ought to be. And they will use every authoritarian tool in the playbook in order to to realize that now in contemporary American societies I think where we need better demographics we do have enough authoritarians and ideologists and many of them are actively involved in the school system and exactly that is their their playbook now they're not Nazis they're not communists or right? they've got their own authoritarian mm-hmm. ideal Uh, right and so on there may be some overlaps but the parallels you're right are are exactly there and they do have a a ready-made system in place for them where you know something like 90% of all kids in the United States are going to government schools so you have a captive audience and so if you can capture that institution then that's uh, that's a huge leg up leg up for you at the same time uh, and this I think again just to emphasize the demographic point there are lots of other people who are in the school system who will be doing similar things but it's not because they are authoritarians in any you know communist Nazi or, or, or other sort of theocratic right fashion instead many of them are just paternalists and what they will say is, the way paternalists do is most parents are incompetent to be running their own children's lives and to be raising their children. And now that's putting it more bluntly, of course, than they will ever say so, but they will look out at, particularly in in poor neighborhoods, and they will say, look at the mothers, right? They themselves don't have much of an education. Uh, They don't have good personal moral standards they're working three or four jobs to try to feed their kids so they're hardly around so the kids are being raised on the streets the dads are deadbeats right and or they are alcoholics and or they are in gangs right and or whatever so we have huge numbers of dysfunctional subcultures in our society and therefore uh, as a benevolent paternalist who's genuinely concerned for the case of the, uh, for the caring of the kids, what we need to do is as much as possible, get those kids out of those dysfunctional neighborhoods and out of those dysfunctional families. And so we will take charge of their education and we will as much as possible try to shut the families out, out of, out of the school. So we will, you know, house them, we will provide them with food, with breakfast, with lunches. We'll go for uh universal preschool, right, and so forth. And so they see the state as a benevolent, paternalistic institution uh, and so on. Now, how many uh, of the teachers and administrators are in that demographic cohort as opposed to the authoritarian cohort? I don't know, I've got my suspicions, right, and so on. But then at the same time, I think we still do have a significant number of people who want to say, I don't really care about the whole politics of education. I like to work with kids. I want them to learn some history, to learn some math. And so these are kind of our ideal of what a good teacher would do, but they're just kind of apolitical. They just want to work with kids, and so they will go along with the system because that's currently the, the dominant system. So it really is a mix.
0: Yeah, and I, I would say to uh, to use like a, a Randian hero, it's it's probably pretty tough for some people to, or most people, to, to play the role of Howard Rourke. You know where you're oh, absolutely, you're, yeah. You're 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 not sacrificing a single principle, no matter how much difficulty it brings. I I think that most people are not going to play that game because it, right. it is difficult. It's very right. difficult, actually.
1: Sure. And at the same time, uh, uh, you know, you know, Rourke is uh, you know, at, at the high end of the integrity and independence spectrum, and he's got the courage to go along with that. So you, you can array people along along that spectrum. But mm-hmm. at the same time, there also is a perfectly rational judgment call, even if you are a person of ind- independence and, and, and courage of choosing which battles you're going to fight. And one of the things that uh, is psychologically healthy and good for your career is not to take on battles that you go into knowing you're going to lose. So in some cases, it is worth just saying, you know, that ship has sailed and I'm just going to carve out the best that I can in this domain because it's fulfilling my personal values, my career values and so on. And I'll just choose my uh, choose my battles strategically.
3: Sure. So now, looking at the current education system and how fast they keep cranking up the wokeness and all the SJW agendas in there. Uh, we've kind of discussed this before. Uh, we're thinking about, there's going to be like a, a hybrid of kids coming out of here. Some that are super obedient and indoctrinated or indoctrinated and just follow orders um, and believe all of it. And there is the possibility that it might breed rebellion. Um, a lot of people might see through it. And hopefully we see like a, kind of like a punk rock anti-establishment type take on a lot of these kids. Yeah. Um, yep. But um what what are your like like i said before um as like a parent how can you combat this or you know teach your kids at home that what they're hearing you know separate the truth from the lies um what would you recommend to parents to be the best uh advice to kind of combat it yeah.
1: well i think uh, the, the, the most important thing parents can do is be um happy decent human beings and, leave and that an really is is the most important right, right enjoy your life, uh, have interesting careers, talk about your work and why you like it so much and spend time with your kids, watch TV shows with them, listen to their music and really, really be involved. Kids learn a huge amount uh, from what we say. They, they do actually listen <laughs> more than you think they are listening. But I think uh, uh, more importantly, they, they are little scientists and they are always watching and observing. And, uh, uh, and and imitating, and uh, uh, and then uh, on the basis of imitating, it becomes part of their second nature, and it becomes authentic to them once they see that that actually works. So, I think that's the most most important thing. Uh, kids, uh, if they have an active social life, uh, I think that that's good because kids learn a huge amount from each other. Uh, I, I don't want to get you know, too personal, but I you know with my uh, my little kids, I remember them sitting in sandboxes. Uh, you know, at age six, uh, one was age six and the other age five, and I couldn't believe it because they were having this very deep discussion about whether zombies were alive or not. You know, so obviously <laughs> the <they're laughs> right? and uh, you know, and one of the, one of the kids was making the point to say, you know, no zombies, zombies are dead, right? They are, they they've been killed and uh, uh, they, they don't really know what's going, going on. It's just that their souls have left their bodies uh, temporarily. or it's, uh, So there's some sort of theory about what zombies... You know, it was kind of sophisticated and well thought out. And the other kid was arguing, no, that zombies have the capacity for moving around, and they're aware of their surroundings, and they have goals. You know, they want to eat your brains, so they must be at least partly alive. And so they... So it was a very sophisticated discussion about what's the difference between life and death, all in the case of, of zombies. So that's a beautiful thing, and uh, you know. And then also, kids on the school ground when they're playing sports and they're having all of those arguments about what the rules were and whether the rules are broken or not. All of that is beautiful moral training and learning about sportsmanship and so on. So, be a great parent, encourage your kid to have uh, you know a healthy social life, but then. Uh, to speak more directly to your point, Mike, I would say, yeah, do be uh, actively involved in what's going on in the particular schools that that's going on. Don't be uh, an uninformed consumer and just ship your kids off to whatever schools. If you are geographically locked into a particular school and or financially locked into a particular school, uh, go to the go to the parent teacher meetings, go to the school board meetings, uh, and and so forth, and 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 make it make it uh, clear to yourself that you know what's going on and then of course you're in a position to uh, to speak up and be a decent informed human being raise your your objections praise people when they're doing a good job teachers love to hear the praise as well Uh, But if they know that you're a decent, well-meaning person, you will have some effect. And then, of course, uh, you will be be in a leadership role for the dozens or hundreds of other parents who aren't investing quite as much time. But if they see that someone is taking the lead, they will follow along silently and or be encouraged to come out and uh, and raise their own voices as well. Now, more ambitiously, of course, if you are, are of an entrepreneurial nature, uh you know with the dismal failures of so many schools and so many school districts there's a great amount of entrepreneurial experimenting going on people trying all kinds of alternative schools mm-hmm. bricks and mortars online and so forth so if that's part of your ambition you've got that skill set and get connected to those entrepreneurial education groups and uh and go for it cool
2: yeah that's- i know we're uh we're coming up uh we're a little over time but it's funny Uh, when you were when you were talking about uh you know how to influence kids or not influence them but just be a a shining light an example i mean the the same could be said of adults we're talking about how to spread our ideas i think that if if libertarians or you know liberty-minded people are just better examples of humans in their own personal lives then we're going to be much more effective at spreading those ideas
1: sure yeah, I would say yeah, particularly online. You know, I, tr- I try to stay out of a lot of social media type discussions, but you know, once in a while, I, I, I dip into those uh, if you know if the person seems reasonable and and decent and has a general question and so on. Uh, but we do know, you know, it's easy to be to be frustrated and a lot of these social media forums uh, since we don't get a lot of the verbal uh, and and visual signals that we normally get in face to face contact. It's easy for people to misinterpret, right, and so forth. And things to spiral out of control. So it'd be the kind of person who's uh, you know, able to maintain civility uh, for longer than the average. And if you just notice yourself, uh, you're just getting too ticked off or whatever, then just bail on the conversation Just and just say, you know, this is not fruitful anymore. I'm, I'm leaving the conversation uh, and just leave it at that. So you know, to the extent that you build an online reputation, you'll also then attract people who are like like-minded. Cool. Well, Dr.
0: Hicks, I
3: know we're a little over time, so I really appreciate it. And um, um,
1: if, well, that was any- an hour that flew by. Yeah, I appreciate yeah, it the invitation very much. Really good, good questions. And uh, I, I do have one room. more quick question for well, you. One more <laughs> quick question. So, as okay. uh,
0: as as the the Rand fan of the uh, of my co-hosts here, I I have to
1: ask you which is your favorite work? Oh, well. Hers. All right. Well, I'm going to cheat and say my two favorite works okay so, i'll allow it yeah and it's, <laughs> it's the, the two big biggest fiction novels i read the fountainhead first mm-hmm. so you know it's kind of like you know the first girl you kissed you never yeah, are yeah. going to forget that uh, the particular one in that particular way mm-hmm. and that it really is a, a beautifully written novel on an absolutely important set of themes in in mm-hmm. in, in, in morality so i would say uh, this is a bit of a false alternative but as a as a an individual human being the Fountainhead is my, is my favorite, but also I'm a philosopher, and so when I read Atlas Shrugged, I'm blown away by its philosophical magnificence and the mm-hmm. scope of the achievement that it uh, renders there, and uh, so as a fuller novelistic explication of a certain view of life, Atlas Shrugged is also my favorite. That's fair. Yeah. Okay. I.
0: I enjoyed both of them. I, I read all of her novels, some of them twice. I, all right. Good. That's, for that's you. kind yes. of what, what led me to, to where I am today. So nice. Yeah. It's on my to-do list. Yeah. <laughs> it's, well, it's, I it's envy all of stuff. you.
1: I know you were talking about how old you are, but from my perspective, you're all young and I, I envy you, your, your intellectual journey still ahead. So enjoy it. <laughs> well,
3: thank you. So do you have any, thank any you so much. your, your uh, books or anywhere people can find you?
1: Yeah, well, my website, stephenhicks.org, is a place where I post uh, yeah, newsy things about my publications, you know, my podcasts, books, articles, uh, reviews, and so on. Um, and and, and uh, you know, there's some new translations that are coming out this year. Uh, Brazilian, Portuguese, uh, Urdu. Which I did not know very much about, but the postmodernism book is uh, coming out in Urdu, which is apparently the 11th most spoken language around the world. There's a the Russian translation uh, is coming out of a firm in Moscow, I believe, this month. So uh, if your language skills are of interest, you'll find the the, the translations there. And then I also do uh, occasional uh, shorter blog post things, just on whatever topic catches my attention so StephenHicks.org is the the first point of contact
3: cool and now are you going to be speaking at freedom fest
1: uh last i heard yes okay yeah, i haven't heard All anything right. for several months but i know i i said yes uh earlier this year so i think cool. so and that's next month so yeah i'll uh i'll have to check my calendar for but sure yes. yeah
3: we'll, we're gonna be there on media row so ah yeah. nice okay Hopefully we'll see you speak That'd be great. Fair
1: enough. Good. I'll look forward to that.
3: Cool. Well, thanks again so much for your time, Dr. Hicks. Thank, right,
1: thank, thank you. Thank you. Bye for now. Yep.